If you looked at Heart of Darkness, since that's the one where, where we're inevitably drawn to, <laughs> and it's still, it's, you know, Heart of Darkness has become one of those kind of hyper-canonical Absolutely. books, which, uh, which we, 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 we probably do need to start, you know, reading less of, um, <laughs> and, and reading less of by reading more of the rest of Conrad. Absolutely. <laughs> because there's a lot more to Conrad than, than Heart of Darkness. But let, let's just take, I'll take one, one scene here. So this is all with a view to saying, uh, what, what is the difference between your, your, your position as a reader when you start to see that what Conrad is producing here is a, a text that is designed to turn language into an object, to not to think of it as some kind of easily transparent window that mm-hmm. takes us into a fictional world. We're meant to constantly look at this as, a, as, a, as an object. And, of course, the obvious way in which that happens is the whole thing is set up as Marlowe telling a story, so in other words, an oral, an act of oral spoken narration to a group of men, all of imperial white uh, Englishmen on, uh, on a boat on the Thames. So that's the, that's the storytelling scenario. Um, and what he does is he describes his journey down uh, to Africa and mm-hmm. then up the Congo River to... Yeah. Um, Bring back this man called Kurtz. So that's the that's the um, the basic situation which makes us aware of the fact that we're listening to what we're listening to. What we what what uh, well crucially what we are reading a book which is describing a group of men listening to a story being told. Okay, and as part of this story being told, quite um, early on in in the uh, in the story, there's a moment at which Marlowe is on the boat going down the west coast of Africa towards uh, um, uh, the Congo, which is, interestingly, in terms of how Conrad works in, in this book, it's, it's never named as such. Mm. Um, it, there's, a, there's an interesting play on interesting. both sometimes very precise naming and then very vague mm. naming. But um, So there's this moment, and at one point, um, at, throughout this journey down the river, down the coast, sorry, the west coast, Marlow is feeling increasingly disturbed uh, by what he's seeing um, in, sort of in terms of the kind of rapacious colonial moves into Africa and, and, and uncertain about what he's going into, what has he led himself into. And remember, he's, this, is a, this is part of the story he's telling. And in this kind of state of anxiety, he then suddenly sees a group of black African men uh, paddling a canoe up towards him on the boat, from the coast. Mm-hmm. And, and this is how he describes it. And remember, this is again how M- Conrad is presenting Marlowe describing this episode. So this is what Marlowe says. Now and then, a boat from the shore gave one a momentary contact with reality, he says. It was paddled by black fellows. You could see from afar the white of their eyeballs glistening. They shouted, they sang, these chaps. But they had bone, muscle, a wild vitality, an intense energy of movement that was as natural and true as the the surf along their coast. They wanted no excuse for being there. They were a great comfort for me to look at. For a time, I would feel I belonged still to a world of straightforward facts. 
but the feeling would not last for long. Okay, so that's you know reasonably straightforward enough in the sense that we are starting to get a, an idea at this point of Marlowe as some kind of he's definitely developing a kind of an angry side yeah. uh, who's deeply skeptical about what Europeans are doing in Africa he he sees these um, uh, uh, black canoeists coming up and he sees them as somehow this is this is their world yeah. and everything else is an alien world and he, and he finds some kind of consolation in that because everything else seems unreal uh, and, and the, the, they seem real but I think one of the key things just to notice about how he describes this and we've got to ask ourselves in a sense what is Conrad staging here is those phrases where he says he talks about their wild vitality and their intense energy of movement Okay, so it's the vitality and energy of these mm. men paddling a canoe up to him on a he's on a on a sailing boat going down the west coast. The interesting thing about this is that description, which once we start to think about European uh, ways of thinking about the world at that time and inherited from older traditions of European thought. There's a distinct air of a kind of a Rousseauistic, going back to the French, the French th thinker Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, a Rousseauistic uh, um, admiration for the primitive. Mm -hmm. This is this is primitivism, as in uh, you know the kind of ordinary dictionary definition sense of this is an idealized, simple life, which is seen to be and respected. It's kind of linked to traditions of the pastoral in that way as well. It's, it's a way. Some aspects of uh, of the pastoral tradition, for instance, um, reverence rural life as opposed to urban life. There's this kind of language going on, and the key thing is that language becomes so much sharper when, having described the, that that canoe paddling up, Marlowe then suddenly switches to describe a French man of war, which is also on the west coast of Africa, and this is what he then goes on to say. So if you remember those terms about vitality and energy and, and wanting no excuse for being there, yeah. then you suddenly get this. And it's exactly the next sentence from where I stopped. So for a time he would, he would feel that he belonged into a normal world. But then something would turn up and scare that away. Once, I remember, we came upon a man of war anchored off the coast. There, were, uh, there wasn't even a shed there. And she was shelling the bush. It appears the French had one of their wars going on thereabouts. Her ensign, that's her flag, her ensign dropped limp like a rag. The muzzles of the long eight-inch guns stuck out all over her low hull. The greasy, slimy swell swung her up lazily and let her down, swaying her thin masts. In the empty immensity of sky and water, there she was, incomprehensible, firing into a continent. Pop would go one of the eight-inch guns. A small flame would dart and vanish. A little white smoke would disappear. A tiny projectile would give a feeble, feeble screech and nothing happened. Nothing could happen. There was a touch of insanity in the proceeding. In the proceeding. I mean, one of the things that strikes me that's about that 
passage, for instance, is just the, the contrast that's being drawn there between, at this point, this idealized vision of a so-called primitive life with all its vitality and mm -hmm. energy and kind of uh, authenticity in contrast to often going in parallel with that kind of European discourse of the primitive is a critique of a decadent, bankrupt, yeah. morally uh, uh, disoriented, lazy, civilized order. So here we get a, an opposition between the primitive as a really positively celebrated mm. term and the civilized as an absolutely denigrated, corrupt uh, term in, in, in that opposition. Yeah. And in, in many ways, again, I think one of the things that's really important to watch is as we read that episode, slice into the heart of darkness at that moment, one of the things that we start to see starts to, ha starts to happen in the course of the narrative is, of course, that's just, this is Conrad showing how this is how Marlowe could construe the relationship between the civilized, the so-called civilized and the so-called primitive mm -hmm. at that point in his narrative. These are the languages that he's drawing, drawing on in order to construe, in this case, say, the relationship between Europe and Africa uh, understood, understood in, 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 in that way. And as we read on in the course of the narrative of Heart of Darkness that goes through various twists and turns, when you understand it as a kind of a, an, a, a staged uh, voice or language, we, we see that that distinction between the so-called primitive and the so-called civilized flips one way, immediately later on it becomes, for instance, mm -hmm. that the primitive becomes the heart of darkness, the horror, the violence and the horror of the primitive in that way. And the civilized looks like, you know, uh, uh, still pretty decadent, but nonetheless something that might be, bi might be reassuring. Mm -hmm. And then right at the end it ends up with a lie which twists things again. Mm -hmm. So what we see Conrad doing is not so much saying anything himself in his own voice mm -hmm. as putting up all these languages that are staging, if you like, all these languages that are available to a figure like Marlowe and holding them up for scrutiny so that you can start to ask yourself as a reader, you know, what, what's, what sustains these languages? How viable are they? Because they keep on being turned on their heads and turned again and turned again as we read all the way through. Thank you, Peter, for unpacking this, uh, the narrative function of, of Marlowe and, um, and Conrad setting up this stage that is is refusing a sort of um, uh, a linear development, mm -hmm. is instead interested in exploring questions and opening up those questions, really, yep. rather than providing answers, very yep. much so. And this narrative structure that almost, you know, you, you set up this flipping and turning and this very sort of winding uh, impression, rather than just your straightforward uh, beginning, middle, end, mm -hmm. um, is something that appears in, in Conrad Zuller you know, contemporaneous novel, Lord mm -hmm. Jim. Mm -hmm. And Marlowe also appears as a, a character and narrator, I suppose, in, in, in that novel. I mean, Marlowe Marlo remains a really key discovery mm -hmm. for... So he first emerges as a figure in the shorter story called Youth, and yeah. then in Heart of Darkness, comes up in Lord Jim again, and then, and then uh, uh, again in, uh, in Chance. Um, but you know, also we shouldn't get too sort of preoccupied with Marlowe. There are many other yeah. ways. You know, under Western eyes, for instance, has the teacher of languages as a, a narrating voice. There's many specific narrating voices, like Captain Mitchell in 
in Nostromo and so on. They're, yeah. they're, they're, he, he comes back to the situated, embodied narrat- narrating voice mm-hmm. again and again, um, and, and that remained really important for him as a, as a discovery for a novelist, and makes a real, a real uh, kind of break in his, in his writing practice after he's, after he's discovered Marlowe. I mean, you know, there's a real sense of, you know, up to, and in, you know, up to youth, He's trying out various possibilities, and then beyond that, he, he, he finds all different ways of addressing these issues of, of embodied narration uh, and staged uh, yeah. uh, discourse or narrative in, in a number of ways. And, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, in many ways, also Lord Jim is fascinating, particularly because of this question of, of race as well, mm-hmm. you know, which we, we started off with, with the Chebe's yeah. uh, criticisms. Um, and Lord Jim is, is even more complicated as a narrative structure than, than Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness is a reasonably simple issue of uh, one man speaking to a group of others on a boat uh, in, in what, we cl- what appears to be a single act of uh, oral storytelling or, or, or oral narrative. Uh, Lord Jim is, is more complex. It has, in the first instance... Uh, four chapters that are told from a third-person, rather traditional, mm-hmm. narratorial point of view, which give us a certain perspective on on um, on Jim and the and the background to the story. Then we suddenly switch to again Marlowe telling his story um, in a kind of an after-dinner mode um, for really what is the bulk of the book of the book that we read as Lord Jim. Um, and that, that's a, it's a little different that story in the sense that the audience is much more implied. It's not we're not clear who they exactly are. They aren't specified in precisely the same terms they are in Heart of Darkness. But we also it's also different in the sense that what we get is an edited or redacted version in this oral substantial oral narrative part of Lord Jim, um, and we're given the, to believe that this is a, a story that Marlowe goes on telling again and again and again. He he becomes fixated, if you like, in some ways, on, on Jim as a figure and the, the problem of trying to narrate Jim's story. And so this is told again and again. It's not just a one-off story. So we get that. It takes us all the way up to chapter 36, which is right towards the yeah. end. And then the final few chapters and the, the closing sequence of Lord Jim, which is the bit that I thought I might focus in on, mm-hmm. is interesting again because it gives us another form of embodied or situated narration, but in this case, going back to an older 18th century form of the novel, in, which is the epistolary novel, or the, the novel that's based on a letter. Yeah. And what we're given to believe is that one of the figures who listens to Marlowe's stories about Jim continues to have an interest in him, uh, and Marlowe then writes a letter to this figure explaining the fi- Jim's final days. Yeah. And the interesting thing again here is that what Conrad is doing is very clearly staging in the figure of the so-called privileged reader, the, the, the man to whom Marlowe addresses his letter, the addressee, uh, stages with, Conrad stages with him, him a very particular set of European attitudes, which are pretty readily and identifiably racially based. Mm-hmm. He's, he's got a deeply racialized view of the world. So for this reader, uh, Jim is uh, beneath contempt 
not just because he's, Jim's failed as a seaman by abandoning the ship, so I won't go into all the details of Lord Jim, you know, you've got to read that in order to get, get these <laughs> things, but uh, uh, not only because he's a failed seaman, he's failed in his professional duties in, in an absolutely culpable way, but uh, that in order to uh, deal with that failure through the machinations largely of Marlowe and, and, and another character in the novel called Stein, he goes, uh, in, in kind of colonialist terms, he goes native. You know, he's a bit like Kurtz in Heart of yeah. Darkness, but a different sort of figure, yeah. where he's supposed to be the hero of empire uh, you know, by going off into a remote village uh, uh, where there's uh, various um, communities, uh, including Muslim communities, mm-hmm. and he lives with the, um, uh, the native population, and he... Uh, falls in love with uh, uh, one of the daughters, yeah. who's of course given the kind of Ryder Haggard name of Jewel. In this kind of Conrad starts to play all sorts of games with imperial romance yeah. fiction conventions in, in that way. For this narrator, who becomes a bit like a voice in some of Kipling's stories, you know that act of miscegenation, that act of crossing over to the racial. Yeah. Others, and who, of course, he regards as inferior, uh, um, is the ultimate betrayal. And this is why, why uh, Jim is beneath contempt. And this is what Marlowe tells us in, you know, in the letter. We made, made very clear that this is what this man thinks. Uh, so Marlowe is addressing this man, the privileged man who's going to receive his letter. And this, is, this is what he says. This is uh, in chapter 36 of, of Lord Jim, right at the beginning of chapter 36. Marlowe says to him, you prophesied for him, that is you, the privileged man, or privileged reader, prophesied for him, that's Jim, the disaster of weariness and of disgust with acquired honour, with the self-appointed task, with the love sprung from pity and youth. Okay, this is about that his life among, amongst the village, villages is going to be end up in disgust. You had said, you knew so well, and then Marlowe quotes his words. This is Marlowe claiming to co- quote the privileged man's words. So the guy who's reading the letter, that kind of thing, it's illusory satisfaction. It's unavoidable deception. You said also, I call to mind that, and these, then he quotes again, giving your life up to them. That's in quotes. This is what the, the man receiving the letter mm-hmm. says. And then Marlowe puts in parenthesis, them, he explains, meaning all of mankind with skins brown, yellow, or black in color. That's Marlowe's in- interpolation. And then back to the quotation from the man, was like selling your soul to a brute. Okay. You contended that, and again, this man's words, that kind of thing was only endurable and enduring when based on a firm conviction in the truth of ideas, and then you get the crucial word, racially our own, in whose name are established the order, the morality of an ethical progress. We want its strength at our backs, you had said. We want a belief in its necessity and its justice to make a worthy and conscious sacrifice of our lives. Without it, without the, uh, it the sacrifice is only forgetfulness. The way of offering is no better than the way to petition. In other words, you maintained that we must fight in the ranks or our lives don't count. Okay. So this is a deeply racialized and deep racist view 
of the world, about needing to remain affiliated to racial groups that are your own, and of course, implicitly, a belief in the imperial yeah. European ethical progress, this adventure as, as having absolutely having full command of ethical progress and so on. So again, we come back to the issue of you know Conrad and race. Here we get we can see Conrad really mm. consciously staging the articulation of a certain European early 20th century racialized view of the world. But importantly, it's Marlowe who then confronts those views. Mm. And he's confronted many views, many views. Lord Jim goes through a string of ways of looking at the world and of vocabularies for understanding ethical conduct, for instance. Mm -hmm. And this is just one of them, and it's the last one. It's the, crucially the last one. And most importantly, Marlowe, having said this, characterized this man's views in that way, then says, possibly. So Marlowe doesn't accept those views. And in fact, what we learn as we read on is the whole final episode in Jim's life that the letter narrates mm. is actually an implicit uh, critique. Yeah of that privileged man's views and the position and the conclusion that he reaches about Jim. Uh, Marlowe doesn't reach a firm conclusion himself, no. but it is certainly, a, we can read uh, um, the, the, the final sequence of the story as a, as, as a firm critique of this man's views. And that's why Marlowe's addressing him. And of course, we have to remember it's why Conrad is in a sense staging that final moment of address. So it's another way, I think, in which Conrad uses the Marlowe figure here yeah. in a way to confront much more directly yeah. uh, European racial thinking. And that gives us you know, evidence that, Marlowe, that Conrad is, is very aware of the sorts yeah. of issues that Achebe wants to raise and, and, and raise rightly. But it also should make us, I think, you know, a little wary about thinking of any of these texts mm. as straightforwardly some sort of expression of Conrad's views. We can see Conrad, I think, and it's one of the things that does make him worth reading, and certainly reading beyond Heart of Darkness into, into all the other great stuff that he did, and beyond the kind of critical framework that people like F.R. Levers set up. You know, he is a writer who is turning, turning back on the culture of his time and, you know, thinking, thinking through its, its own languages and, and, uh, and um, ways of understanding, and then finding forms of writing that will put those, yeah. uh, those languages and ways of understanding uh, on the stage, as it were, and hold them up for scrutiny. Absolutely. And I think what's so fascinating is his, uh, by, by laying in such a complex way, particularly in that, that final passage where you have the fictional character who's written a letter to an, another presumed fictional character, and he's quoting, one is quoting the other, you know, you're almost, the, the yeah. web of, of different... Uh, embeddedness, I suppose, of, yeah. of of whose text is who, and you know, to to try and draw a comrade out of that is absolutely right. Is almost, I mean, it, it's it's um, it's it's almost like he's purposefully so he sort of shifts every time you try and you try and grab, grab him from within there. Absolutely right. I mean, you know, if you just if you just think about again, I think with a lot of reading, it's not it's not some sort of arcane specialist. Activity. Yeah. It's about just looking at what's in front of you yeah. and actually seeing. Something, sometimes that's one of the most difficult things to do. Yeah. Is actually, just see what's directly in front of you. And if you look at that that moment that I just read from the end end of Lord Jim, there, you know, what's in front of you 
is a book of, you know, if you're reading it as opposed to hearing yeah. it on a <laughs> podcast. Uh, what's in front of you is a book uh, in which a narrating character's voice or words uh, are being quoted by an author, by Conrad. Conrad is, is quoting Marlowe's letter yeah. to this other man, and Marlowe's letter to this other man quotes this other man's language and then goes on to sort of think it through and critique it. And again, I think, that, you know, just to, that maybe to, to end off, the key thing I would say is that this isn't a trick. It isn't a sleight of hand. It isn't Conrad trying to yeah. remain somehow morally <laughs> distant from all this sure. stuff because he's got psychological problems mm. or because he wants to not be pinned down. It's because he wants to be able to turn these words, which we might use to understand the world and move around in it, into objects that we can think about and scrutinize and not yeah, just exactly. accept for, for what they are. Mm. Great. Thank you, Peter.